E aku manu taki, e aku manu taiko, nau mai ki te hōtaka nei, ātiahika, ko Justine Murray, ahau. This week and for the next few weeks we feature episodes from the podcast Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student. Trainee Dr Emma Espiner is in Porirua with the Wallace Farno, who share their story about a night in ED that changed their lives. They looked at him and they judged him straight from the get-go because he's got tattoos up his arms. He's dark. He's a little dark merry boy, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's how I felt. Like, oh, yeah, there's one of those other statistics. Those merry boys, they don't look after themselves, smoke and drink. I don't know if that would have happened to a Pākehā. Even when the facts are familiar they are still infuriating. Māori are less likely to receive prescriptions for the same illnesses as non-Māori. Our cancers are diagnosed later and have poor prognosis. We get sick younger and die earlier. We know these things because of numerous reports and investigations over the years. We have participated in good faith, collected our mamai and reported it to researchers, government agencies, health professionals. There's a wealth of evidence that's been built up by successive studies, but in concrete terms, very little has been done to address these failings. For years, we just blamed Māori for getting sick. It's only recently that the system has been acknowledged as a perpetrator of inequity. Now, a massive revamp of our health system is in the offing, including the proposal for a new Māori health authority. But the Māori group advising on this has already been sidelined, and there's been a distinct lack of detail about which recommendations will even make it into action. In short, don't hold your breath. So what's it like to be a Māori medical student training to be a doctor inside a system that is prejudiced against your own people? From Bird of Paradise Productions for RNZ, call Emma Espinaraho, and this is Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student. Over the next seven episodes, we'll take you inside 12 months in my life as a trainee doctor. We'll see what it takes to deliver healthcare to whānau from rural Northland to Gisborne, Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. We'll see how our Māori health leaders are part of a fellowship reforming racist health systems all over the world. And we'll talk to whānau whose experiences are the real-life stories behind the statistics. And as Aotearoa locked down for COVID, we saw how the government could deal swiftly with one health crisis – Where's that urgency when it comes to Māori? This is episode one, A Better Chance of Dying. As you're beginning to appreciate, if you've looked and uh, started reading your guidebook, it's a fairly complex programme and we don't expect you to understand all of it uh, early on, but we gradually um, upskill you in how how to navigate your way through it. I'm about to go into my final year at Auckland University. The further you get on, the more you're expected to be able to demonstrate by actually doing uh, your medical knowledge, uh, particularly in year six, where you're behaving as what we sometimes call a trainee intern, so you're behaving as a junior doctor. It's one thing to learn about Māori life expectancy from a graph, but as soon as you step onto the wards, you're seeing it play out in real time with real people, real whānau. For Māori students, it's even more confronting. These are our whānau. This is the Wallace Fano in Purirua. Kia my name is Colin Wallace. I'm the founder of All This Mess. 
Hello, I'm Tina Wallace and I'm 50. Hi, my name is Tadia Wallace-McKinney-Cantrell and I'm 8. Kia ora, my name is Paddy Cody and I am 16 years old. Kia ora, my name is Harmony and I'm 18. <laughs> Kia ora, my name is Tida and I'm 30 years old. Kia ora, Reha Wallace and 31. As well as being a mum and a grandmother, Tina has been working as a smoking cessation counsellor at Kōkiri Marae in Purirua. She's gathered the whole whānau together this morning to tell us the story of a night six years ago when everything changed. It was in August and I was finishing work on the 28th. That was my last day of work. Well, the Monday of that week, my husband had a stroke. So I got up and I went to the whareapaka and I could hear this noise, this mm, mm, moaning noise. And I was like, Dada, what's wrong? And he wouldn't answer me. And I was like, Dada? And then he kept groaning. So I switched on the light and I go, are you all right? And he, he wouldn't open his eyes. And then I went to go and pull the blankets off and his hand was like twisted. And then I was saying, and I said to him, Dada, look at me, smile, smile. And then he went to smile and one side of the face was paralysed. So, and you asked him to do that because I you knew... I asked him because I knew straight away we have been learning about stroke at work. So um, I got him to smile and only one side. So I woke my girls up, which is Harmony and my other daughter, Putty. I ran to the kitchen, rang an ambulance, told them where we were and all that. And then um, they came. Tina and the girls got Colin to hospital. Colin's thrashing about on the bed and he's trying to sit up and I says to him, Dada, you need to relax. Just calm down, you've had a stroke. And so he sort of just relaxed back down onto the bed and then he'd try and move again, you know, let's thrashing to get up and I say, Dada, no, relax. You've had a stroke, you just need to relax. The doctors are here, we're okay, you're okay. You feel like they're doing what they need to do. Yeah, they need to do because I don't know what to ask or anything. So I'm thinking, yep, they're doing, you know, everything that, they need to do to look after my husband. So they ring, They came into the room. One of the doctors came in and he says, oh, you need to uh, ring your family. And I said, oh, why? And he says, oh, your husband, he won't, he's, um, I don't know how long he's got to live. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And then um, he says, well, um, what's happening is Colin's brain is swelling and it's swelling that fast that eventually um, the skull's going to crush his brain. What was it like to hear that? I was dumbfounded. I was like, what? I didn't even, I was like, what are you saying? I couldn't believe what they were saying to me because we were communicating. He was not talking, but I've been married to that man for 30 years and without even speaking, I can, like, read him. And... um, you know, like when I'd say to him, Dada, relax, just lie back, he would do all that kind of stuff. So I knew he was so in conscious, there, yeah. but he just couldn't speak. They thought that he wouldn't make it, and then you, you went buying it. And then and then what happens? I said, there's nothing you can do for him. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, and he's physically active, and there's absolutely nothing you can do for my husband. And they said, oh, hang on a minute. And they went, they went. and then they came back and then said, oh, um, does your husband smoke and drink? And I said, no, he doesn't. I said, he's so he's physically fit. He don't smoke and he don't drink. And he, I, I can't believe there's nothing you can do for him. And they said, well, actually, what we can do is we can cut his bone flap out. And relieve the pressure on yeah, his brain. Yeah, I, I don't know no. what a bone flap is. And I'm like, well, okay, if that's going to save his life, well, 
great. And they said, well, <clears throat> we can cut his bone flap. And what that can do is it can alleviate the pressure on his brain. It seems like everything changed when you told them that he wasn't a drinker and he wasn't a smoker. It did. Yeah. The whole dynamics changed. Like, I was going from having no hope at all, like 24 hours, that's what they told us, 24 hours, and then to, oh my gosh, there's there's something they can do for him. So is it something that hadn't been discussed early on or you think they just assumed... They didn't discuss nothing like that with us. Do you feel like they'd assumed he was a... They did assume. Yeah. They looked at him and they judged him straight from the get-go because he's got tattoos up his arms. He's dark. He's a little dark merry boy, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's how I felt. Like, oh, yeah, there's one of those other statistics. Mm. There's merry boys that, you know, don't look after themselves, smoke and drink. Do you think they were racist? I don't know if they were racist, but I just know that there was not... That whatever happened that particular moment has to be racism, though. If you're... Why would they not do something, or why would they do that to to him? It has to be racism. Yeah. Terrible. I don't know if that would have happened to a Pākehā. Now, as students, we're taught to reflexively interrogate our biases all the time. Something as simple as, would my approach to this patient be different if they were non-Māori? We get feedback from senior doctors that our generation has learned to think with an equity lens, that we get taught about racism in a way that simply didn't happen when they were at medical school. But we are at the bottom of a mountain. The system has a lot of rocks to shift to allow the next generation to enact what we've been taught. Getting it wrong can be a question of life or death. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't said anything? He would have died. He wouldn't be here today. He'd be dead. They only gave us 24 hours. What I remember is 11, 11 to 11, 12 hours, 11 to 11. That's all I could think of. He's got to survive from 11 to 11, because if he survives that, then he's got 12 more hours. And so we kind of lived from 12 hours to 12 hours. You know, after all these years, I'm still crying. Colin's surgery was a success, but for his whānau, the hard part was just beginning. His sister came. He woke up 15 days after. 15 days. So you're waiting for 15 days. I just lived in ICU. I slept outside in the hallway for a couple of weeks because you just didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring, you know? So you just... Yeah, I was just there. And I knew that, like, the shift work, like, 10 to 7, you had to go. You had to go and sit in the foyer. And, and I used to, like, have anxiety about it because I didn't know, like, in that three hours whether um, he would be all right or... Because they used to switch over then. You know, the nurses used to come because they... And, and they used to switch, switch shifts over and then debrief and then you used to have to wait till 10 o'clock to go back in. But yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And then we lived out there for 15 days in that foyer. It sounds like you adapted to the hospital system I rather did. than having it work around you. You just do what you got to do, you know. Like, you just felt, like I just felt happy that I could even be there because I just... You know, no one came to kick you out and tell you you couldn't stay there, so you just follow procedures and hoping that no one would come and 
tell you to go? Yeah, because you don't want to offend anyone and I didn't want anyone to kick me out of there. Kick me and my family away. This part of the story is what really broke my heart. Mana wahine is a concept I find easy to associate with Tina, but to hear about the lack of dignity that was afforded to her at a really difficult time, that was really hard. Health literacy is an outdated idea that makes me grind my teeth. It puts the onus on individuals to learn more in order to navigate a system that's often horrendously complex, punishing people who don't understand it and rewarding those who do. But for the sake of understanding this situation, I'd say that this whānau are highly health literate. So Colin got the help he needed before it was too late. But it shouldn't have come to this. And unfortunately, their battle was only just beginning. It's six years now since Colin had his stroke, and the family have done an amazing job, without any real support for a long time after he left hospital. Our health system allocates funding based on the needs of a Pākehā majority. Colin wasn't supposed to have had a stroke in his 50s. The Stroke Foundation tells us that most strokes in New Zealand occur in over 65s. Most strokes among Pākehā, that is. We didn't know we could get help. So, for so how did you years, find out? I, I got burnt out and I went to the doctor's. And I said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And I said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I um, get my husband up at seven every morning. I shower him. And I said, I, and i got to come home throughout the day because all my kids work. But it you was... guys muddled along without any support. And then what did your GP say? Oh, I'll send a letter to Capital Coast DHB and well, they'll send an assessor out. So the assessor came to the house. Colin was here on his own because I was at work and I was on my way back, but she came early. And she goes, oh, my gosh, he needs five hours a day. He cares. So why didn't that happen cares. when you left the hospital? didn't even know that you could get all that. <laughs> Nothing. They told us, oh, the only help you can get is um, uh, for one year after the stroke is um, rehabilitation for him. So that's, yeah, that's what we had. And so I had to train him to to teach him how to go taller and just to look after himself. Dr Curtis Walker is chair of the Medical Council, the first Māori doctor to hold that position. I asked him about what happened to the Wallaces. Oh, ko tume tuatahi um, mihi aroha ki, ki te rā whānau uh, e pāna, um, e pāna tēnā kōrero. Look, those kind of stories, um, well, it's not a story, is it? It's the truth for that whānau, and it happened, and it happens. So those uh, sorts of things uh, have gone on, do go on, and will continue to go on in a disproportionate way for Māori for as long as, as we don't make the, the world and system a better place. So, at least one thing that uh, we're asking doctors to do with my medical council portai on um, and health organisations, um, as far as we can influence them, um, is to deliver culturally safe care. Now, that starts with us as doctors and us as hospitals and us as systems saying, where are our biases? Where is our racism? What are the sorts of things that are determining our decision making here? How are we genuinely going to understand that whānau's experience and learn from it? Um, Because that care is not safe. We are not delivering safe care. They are not receiving safe care. um, And that results in those, you know, all sorts of unequal outcomes. Unequal outcomes. That's jargon for having a better chance of dying if you're Māori. 
in theory, everyone gets the same care. In practice, if there are critical moments when decisions are made, if they involve triage around resources or around how much effort goes into any one case, these are marginal, almost subconscious decisions made by real people in stressful situations. The guts of it is, if you take your husband into ED in the middle of the night, he has a better chance of coming out alive if you can connect with the doctors and nurses who'll be looking after him. That might mean language, that might mean culture, it might just be about your tattoos or your face. Becoming a doctor means reconciling myself with being part of a system that discriminates against my own people. One of the reasons I wanted to make this series is to find out, how do other Māori in the system deal with this? Do they get hōha, make a noise, potentially exhaust themselves, fighting all the time? Or keep faith, look to the changes said to be coming, and work with what we've got in the meantime? It's not a new choice in the context of our colonial history. Going back to kind of 1840s, signing of the Tetiriti, there were Māori inside the tent trying to strike a deal to get the best options possible and to, you know, look for that way forward. Equally, there were Māori outside the tent who were cutting down flagpoles and agitating and saying, actually, that's not good enough. And and those two uh, parallel uh, streams of thought, uh, ways of action kind of intertwine and um, in many ways support each other. And sometimes they intertwine in the same doctor. I'm, I'm excluded from Otago University. I'm named in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Named in the Senate means you can never go back. Eh? There's a flagpole involved, I'm just saying. These days, Dr Rawiri Jansen is the highly respected clinical director for the National Hoara Coalition and former head of the Māori Doctors Association, Te Ora. As a GP in South Auckland, he's working within the system to effect change. But back in his Otago days, his activism was more hands-on. And it was a bloody big flagpole, you know. And our fantasy was a skinny little pole. The bloody thing was about, uh, you know, more than 12 inches square at its base. And thunk, thunk, and it's echoing off all the buildings. And the security guard comes walking towards us and he yells, what are you doing? Well, it's obvious what we're doing, man. It's, it's Waitangi Day. What do you think we're doing? And so we chopped it. It took about, oh, must have taken 14 minutes chop it all right through and it tumbled down. And then our getaway car kind of stalled and we were running after it and then we had to push it. That's so Dunedin. (laughs) Oh, God, that was hilarious. Dr Jansen spent a decade as a full-time activist and protester. Um, Nuclear friend of Pena Pacific, Māori land, Māori language, um, Springbok tour, all that sort of stuff. Before finding his way back to medicine. By that stage we had four kids and a mortgage and so... Yeah, I was at med school all day and dropped them off at school, make their lunches and pick them up and study all night. And I started running my first business doing cultural competency training courses when I was a med student. What, what year? What year were you in when you started doing that? Second year. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I loved it. It was just, <laughs> I felt found. He's now a GP in a kaupapa Māori practice in South Auckland, and he knows exactly how it feels, trying to stay well and thrive in a health system that's not set up for us. Non-Māori are going to uh, recognise everything about that system, it's built for them. They're going to be comfortable straight away. You don't, you don't have to worry about whether there's oxygen in the room because you can breathe. Mm. Great. But if there's no oxygen in the room, you're going to get uncomfortable. And so I think of culture being something like that for when you've got cultural concordance, it's completely natural, completely comfortable. But when you go somewhere where those things don't exist... Mm. There's not enough oxygen in the room to breathe. It's uncomfortable. 
The thing about being a doctor is that you're the one who people are grateful to see when someone's not breathing, when there isn't any air. I asked the Wallace Farno how much of a difference it would have made if they'd had a Māori doctor that night in the ED. Oh, huge difference, huge. I can just feel it already. I can, all that, what I felt that day would have been lifted, hugely, because the, the, the understanding in Māori... Māori know that Māori are shy. They don't ask for anything. They don't want to push boundaries. And so coming from a Māori perspective, you would know, oh, that family. You know, if they're not talking or they're not saying anything, you would get them and bring them together and say, look, this is what's happening. You know, you wouldn't just leave them on their own defending for themselves or, like, trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. A doctor would come and say, look, how do my whānau? Come, we need to have a kōrero. And so you would just go, and then they would say to you, this is what's happening to your loved one. And explain it to you so that everyone knew. Not in bits and pieces or two, just one person. They would bring the family together and say, look, this is what's happening for your your papa. This whānau, who only just met me, have such incredible belief in the doctor that I'm going to be. Like, flattering, obviously, but I also feel that it's less about me as an individual and more about an instinctive recognition of the way that these big systems work. Cultural safety isn't just paying lip service to the idea of diversity. It's recognising that this is how we, as doctors, make judgments. Judgments that can result in life or death. Back in the city, we parked up on Cuba Street and Noel and I talked about it. When Tina said how great it would have been if you had been the doctor who was on duty that night, if you'd been there, how did that make you feel? I mean, it's the whole reason I'm here. So that was that was validating in that sense. And also, you know, you do get a bit jaded sometimes, especially working at that kind of political commentary level where we're talking about, you know, various inquiries and, and inequity and looking at the stats and getting bogged down by all of that stuff. And then just to meet a family that say, you know, say to you, just coming into the ED and seeing you and your face and knowing that you're Māori would make a difference. Did it make you want to be a doctor in the system? It made me realise that you can do something within this system. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of us that are asking for things to change at a system level, but it's kind of, you know, it's matching those two things up. So, I mean, I'm a bit of a pragmatist, so I'm like, well, the system's not going to dramatically change in the next five to ten years. Um, so what can we do within this system now? And so it is possible to have a positive effect even in the system as it stands and then do that other work in tandem with that. Which, I guess, is how you get a former flagpole chopper using te tiriti to redress inequity born of our colonial history. 2499, the Māori medical practitioners, Te Ohurato Aotearoa, were claimants in the Waitangi Tribunal Kaupapa Inquiry into health services and outcomes. So the Māori medical practitioners are really interested in being able to look at the wider determinants of health as well as necessarily in Aotearoa, we must look at history of colonisation. We must look at colonisation as it is running now. We must look at racism. And if we're to change the outcomes for Māori, then we must undo some of those things. We must address many of those things. How many? Probably most of them. This is the challenge for us as Māori in medicine. We're thinking ahead and we're dreaming, advocating for something better, while having to do our best in the system as it is. 
You're putting on the band-aid while designing the new world and, all the while, fighting those who don't agree with you. It's a lot, but Tina's story is an example of why we do it. This happens on the wards with every Māori patient we see, every patient who sees us. You make a difference for one person and it gives you the motivation to keep going towards the bigger goal of a truly equitable health system. And what's changed for you guys since? What has family life different now? It's just lucky mum was there. She she just like, she, I don't know, she just wheeled him back and she just like stuck by his side. Like she never left him and then she just like nurtured him from the side, even if it was just singing, holding his hand, she'd talk to him. She would, she was just really nurturing towards dad. And then, yeah. But today, yeah, he's a headache. Today, <laughs> he was a headache before, and he's a headache now. You're a headache. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing's That's changed. Why I refuse to die. Someone to talk about. You don't really know that it's like that big, but actually, like Ray said. You don't say something now, it's going to affect somebody else's family. And how many families have been affected like this and haven't had the support? This is the heart of it, eh? When Fano are discharged from our hospitals, they go home. If they're lucky to have a family like the Wallaces, they figure it out and get better together. It'd be nice if we had a health system which made that easy for them. Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student with trainee Dr Emma Espiner, produced by Birds of Paradise Productions. Now you can find the entire Getting Better series on the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Next week for her GP placement, Emma joins Dr Kyle Eagleton at his weekly clinic at Tuparehuia in the Northland. It's a constant struggle, the political struggle. And I'm not the one to talk about it because I'm not Māori. I'm not living the, this political battle every day of my life. You know, when I come to work, that's when the political battle starts. But for for my Māori colleagues, it's a battle every day to fight against the things that are kind of not right. Episode 2 coming up in next week's but if you'd like to hear the entire series, you can, of course, subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or where you access your podcasts. To get in touch, you can, of course, email chahika at rnz.co.nz. Ko te mana ko ia kia hau maru tā koutou noho, tēnā tātou katoa.